0: be seated. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 28 this morning. Matthew chapter 28. If you don't have a Bible but would like to follow along, you can use one of the church Bibles, which you'll find under one of the chairs in front of you. It's the black book, and you'll find our text on page 835 today. Page 835. Matthew 28. June 26 holds a place of tension in my mind and in my heart. First and foremost, it holds a place of joy and preciousness because on that day in 1999, I stood hand in hand with a young woman as we made promises of fidelity and love, becoming husband and wife. I love that day because of that, but just as I love it, it also is like fingernails on a chalkboard to my mind and to my heart. Because while I celebrate June 26th for the wonderful and profound changes that came into my life as a result of marriage, culturally, June 26th represents the mangling of the same precious institution For on June 26, 2003, the Supreme Court struck down all laws against sodomy in a case called Lawrence versus Texas, which ultimately opened the doors for an even worse decision two years later, or excuse me, 10 years later. On June 26, 2013, we saw the court ruling in the Windsor decision striking down the federal government's Defense of Marriage Act, interestingly enough, designed and advocated by President Clinton at the time. This week, once again on June 26th, the Supreme Court of the United States went even further seeking to redefine the institution of marriage itself. In a 5-4 decision, the majority believed that, quote, marriage is a fundamental right, end quote, found in the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Again, interestingly enough, an amendment which does not mention marriage at all. Part of this right then, as they ruled, is that states license a marriage between two people of the same sex and to recognize a same-sex marriage entered into lawfully in another state. Thus, the Supreme Court struck down the state constitutional amendments that defined marriage as between a man and a woman that are found in Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, and here in our own state of Michigan. The court overruled the voice of the people in those states. In the end, that decision seeks to redefine marriage for the entire country to include same-sex couples. Now, on one level, to be sure, this was an expected ruling. I don't know anybody who has been following the cases uh, over the last decade that thought that that was not going to happen. But as the president of Southern Seminary, Albert Moeller, remarked this week, the decision was worse than we thought it would be. Why? In part because the way in which the the ruling was made, the the legal justification behind it effectively undid the constitutionality of our lawmaking. In his dissenting opinion, in other words, he disagreed with the five uh, majority members. Chief Justice Roberts said that this decision by the other judges was, quote, an act of will, not legal judgment. Interestingly enough, Robert says in his dissent, more or less, he thinks same-sex marriage should be okay, but that there cannot be, he cannot see a constitutional argument for making it a legal right. More concerning for us, though, is that the small bone that was seemingly thrown towards religious liberty in that ruling was really not a bone at all, at least not one that we would like to have, but one that will probably cause us to choke in the years to come. On the surface, it looks helpful, but in reality, it it limits religious liberty. Justice Kennedy, writing for the majority, said at the end of his brief, Finally, it must be emphasized that religions and those that adhere to religious doctrines may continue to advocate with utmost sincere conviction. By divine precepts, same-sex marriage should not be condoned. The First Amendment ensures that religious organizations... And persons are given proper protection as they seek to teach the principles that are so fulfilling and so central to their lives and faiths and to their own deep aspirations to continue the family structure they have long revered. Notice that whereas the Constitution's First Amendment guarantees the right to the free exercise of religion, Justice Kennedy limited his words to the mere teaching of the principles of our faith. Not surprisingly, Justice Alito also in his dissent commented that this decision will, quote, be used to vilify Americans who are unwilling to assent to the new orthodoxy, end quote. In other words, he believes Christians or even those in other religions that would hold to the same ethical and sexual morals that we do will eventually be pressured or even prosecuted for holding to a different belief about marriage, especially if it is tried to live out in the public square. So the title of this sermon, which at this point doesn't sound like much of a sermon, asks the question that we need to ask, now what? Now what? Where do we go from here? What should we do? How should we think? How should the people of Christ respond to the court's decision? In order to answer that this morning, I want to go to a familiar passage, one that I think will help us see how these truths should be thought about in our modern times, In Matthew 28, we see Christ emerging victorious from His atoning death on the cross and His burial in the grave through a resurrected life. He secures salvation for sinners, forgiveness, and He is raised for their justification. Then as He prepares to ascend back to heaven, back to the Heavenly Father and take His rightful place at His right hand as the King over all things, Jesus issues this command to his disciples. Matthew 28, beginning at verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This weekend, many Christians are wondering what to do because of the SCOTUS ruling. Some are asking helpful questions. Others are simply making snide comments on social media. Thinking about these things, Russell Moore, the president of our Denominations Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, has probably given the best one-line summary of what our response should be to this decision. He said in a tweet, Christians need to just... Keep calm and walk the line. And essentially, that's what I'm going to explain how we do from Matthew 28 this morning. We begin by remembering that we have in Christ a superior authority. We have a superior authority as the basis for sending his disciples to the ends of the earth to make disciples of all peoples, a quite audacious thing considering there's only between 70 and 120 people at this point standing at the feet of Christ as he ascends to heaven. And he says, you're going to go everywhere to all peoples and tell them their religious beliefs are wrong unless they are putting their faith in me. They need to forsake their false gods and look to me, the one true God. The basis for that was this statement, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If that is true, then it puts no limits on any realm of existence over which Christ is king. He has authority over all things. And so as we think about that this morning, it means first of all that he has authority over marriage. Christ has authority over marriage. That gets to the real issue this morning. Why is this ruling such a big deal? That's what some people are thinking anyway. Not long after the announcement on Friday, uh, there were many advocating that churches just stop doing marriages at all to get out of the so-called marriage business to just give it over to the secular authorities. Let it be a civil issue uh, where even Christians could go to a, a justice of the peace, say their vows, and then have a religious ceremony celebrating that marriage. On the surface, that may seem like a good idea. It may even come to that at some point, depending upon how quickly things change in the political arena. But the question The assumption there as to why that would be a good thing too quickly abandons the larger truths that stand behind marriage itself, namely what marriage is and who created it. Ultimately, who has authority over marriage? You might remember that even in Jesus' day, there were debates about marriage. And when his enemies tried to trap him up, this was one of the issues that they used. How did he answer? How did he respond to this question about marriage? Ultimately, he appealed to the one who created marriage, his heavenly father, and the instructions he gave about it in his word. So in Matthew 19, we see the Pharisees come up to him, testing him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus, is it it true? Is it lawful? Is it okay if a man puts away, divorces, gets rid of his wife for any reason at all? Now notice what Jesus doesn't say in his answer. He doesn't use the kind of arguments we see today, like "What's the big deal? What does it matter?" or "Marriage can be anything you want it to be." Or "What's most important is your love and happiness." No, what does he say? He he tells these Jewish religious leaders, "What? Well, why are you Why are you asking this question? You know the answer." Because you know the scriptures and the God who gave them. The God who gave you marriage. The creator of all things designed and instituted marriage for the good of humanity. By his design, marriage is between two people, a man and a woman. And through emotional and physical intimacy experience in that marriage, they become one flesh. That is to say, their souls, as well as their bodies, are united in a way that is meant to be unique to them as a couple. Anything else? is simply wrong. Worse, it is harmful to those involved and to society as a whole. Christ still reigns supreme as one with all authority, and that includes authority over marriage. His word and his will has not changed, therefore neither should we. We cannot simply abandon the Bible's teaching on marriage and get with the times as we're told. We don't have the authority to do that if we're at all genuine about our beliefs, about who Christ is. At the same time, at the same time, let's not miss the context of Jesus' words there in Matthew 19. The debate there wasn't about same-sex marriage. The debate was about divorce and marriage. And so let's just stop and be honest and say that the lobbyists for the LGBT community and SCOTUS are not the only ones that have done damage to the institution of marriage. The church has been guilty of a less than clear vision of marriage every time we have brushed aside the sinfulness of wrongful divorce, cohabitation, or sex before marriage. Anytime the biblical vision, God's design and intention of marriage is not made clear and celebrated in the church among God's people, in their teaching, and in their practice... We failed to be faithful to our own beliefs. We have done damage to the institution of marriage. We've already accommodated to the culture rather than live distinct from it. Therefore, under the authority of Christ, even today, the church needs to repent and then go on to be clear and consistent in our theology of marriage and sexuality. Christ has authority over marriage, but he also has, secondly, authority over government. Christ has authority over government. Later in Matthew, some of the religious leaders are again trying to trap Jesus in the same something that would give them grounds for action against Him. They either want Him to say something that will discredit Him in the eyes of the people to to dislodge the popularity He has with them and therefore their following of Him, or get Him to say something that will be the basis for them to bring a criminal charge against Jesus. In chapter 22 of Matthew's gospel, it's a question about taxes and authority the authority of human, even pagan governments over God's people, specifically Rome over Israel. And so in order to answer that question, he asks for a coin. And taking the coin, he shows them Caesar's picture on the coin. He asks them, whose image is on the coin? And they respond, Caesar's. And so Jesus famously says in Matthew twenty-two twenty-one: 21, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Of course, following what God says in Genesis 2, namely that humanity is made in the image of God, Jesus knows that every individual person is stamped with God's image. And therefore, we as individuals need to be rendered fully to Him. Thus, his point is that we all have, include all of us, all that we have belongs to God. But thinking about the issue of marriage, we need to be clear that that means God owns marriage, Caesar doesn't any more than he owns individual people. Marriage is as old as humanity, but it is not a construction of humanity. Humanity didn't make it. It's not a product of human culture, just the opposite. It was given by God to help create Human culture. In that regard, nothing has changed because of the Supreme Court ruling. Government doesn't own marriage, it can only recognize it. Therefore, we don't need to follow the advice of some voices again, telling us to get in line with the 21st century. We don't need to worry about being on the right side of history on this issue. Friends, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, we know where history goes. We know how it ends and who's going to be on the wrong and the right side, if not now, on the last day. We need to acknowledge the authority of Christ, even if it means disobeying civil authority. That is not in the Christian's first response when we don't get what we like. You, you, know, you know, people are asking, what well, does this mean that pastors are going to get in trouble if they don't perform same-sex marriage? I don't think so. I think the greatest people that are going to be at risk in the immediate future are going to be colleges and parachurch organizations and businesses who are going to be forced to live contrary to their conscience. And 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 there's decisions that need to be made about how to appropriate or respond to that. But our first response If they take away the church's tax-exempt status or the pastor's uh, housing salary, it's not to pitch a fit into protest and say, well, we're just going to do whatever we want. You know what? We can live without those things. We can live without those things. But when it comes to saying that we must recognize marriage, a relationship that God does not recognize in marriage, then then we have to say, like Christ's disciples in Acts 5, we must obey God rather than men. Now, some people will say, well, wait a minute. We're just talking about marriage here. How can it be that important of an issue? Well, you have to understand that for Christians who understand their Bible, marriage is not just about marriage. Marriage is a gospel issue. Marriage flows out of the most important truth that we hold dear In Ephesians 5, Paul gives instructions to husbands and wives about how they ought to relate to one another in marriage. Most of us probably need to read those instructions. But what's interesting is that he grounds what he says in the same passage that Jesus did, Genesis 2. The two shall become one flesh. Then Paul makes this astonishing statement. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What? What? The two shall become one flesh, Paul says, is mysterious and difficult to grasp because ultimately, Paul says, it refers to Christ and the church. So let's be clear. Paul is not using the church as an illustration of marriage. It's the other way around. God designed marriage to serve as an illustration of his love for his people, of Christ and the church. So the love and intimacy of a husband and wife is meant to point to a deeper, more profound intimacy between God and His people. So, so the, the desires, humanly speaking, that we have for, for sexual intimacy are good desires. But they are not the end all of our life. If they are not fulfilled in the way that we want them to be fulfilled, it's okay because ultimately those desires are there to push us to desire something even greater than sexual intimacy and in marriage. Those desires are there to help us to understand the yearning and the longing that can only be satisfied by a relationship with God. This is why every disordering of marriage and family is more than just a social issue. It is a distortion of God's love and the gospel and a defaming of His glory. This is why we have to acknowledge Christ's authority over government, especially on the issue of marriage. And so once again, Russ Moore, it's helpful. He says, if the state ever attempts to force us to call marriage that which is not marriage in our churches and ceremonies, let's obey God, even if it means we sing our wedding hymns in the prison block. It's not just a cultural issue. It's a gospel issue for Christ's people. In him, we have a superior authority and from him, we have a clear assignment we have a clear assignment. This is the second thing we see from Matthew 28. Jesus gives instructions to his people on how they ought to live until his return. Sometimes these words are called the great commission, but they define how every individual believer and how every church ought to think about life and ministry, how they ought to serve God until they either meet him face to face or Christ returns. Jesus says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, this task of disciple making is not new to the church at large. We've been doing this for quite a long time, and it's not new to Crossway here in particular. But how do we fulfill that task? How do we make disciples today? Now, on one question, that seems pretty silly because we should be doing it the same way that we've always done it. But an issue like this SCOTUS ruling, tends to reveal the worst of God's people. At least that's been my experience with online interactions. Several have fallen short of how I think Christ would have us make disciples against the backdrop of the current marriage crisis. So, so how do we go about making disciples? Well, I think we need to hold together very tightly two of Christ's clear and most obvious commands. There's much more that we can be said. There's books that can be written on this. But for this morning and our purposes, two clear mandates that we have that we must hold together without fail. First, we must love our neighbors. We must love our neighbors. Not long after his teaching on Caesar, Jesus was challenged to summarize the law of God in Israel. I did so with two commands. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Both are essential for living the Christian life, but the second poses the greatest challenge for us today, I believe. Because of the repugnancy many find in the sin of homosexuality and same-sex marriage, not to mention the clear hostility directed towards the church by their lobbyists, many Christians tend to be filled with anger and bitterness towards that community rather than love. And that's not limited to the folks at Westboro Baptist either. There is a kind of ugly self-righteousness that comes as people say things and post things on social media about the rightness of God's design and the wrongness of others. Let me just be clear. We are not for a minute saying we back off of the truth of God's word. In fact, we just asserted Christ's authority over marriage, over government, implicitly over our lives. But there's there's a right way to hold the Bible's teaching and there's a wrong way to do it. We have to remember that those celebrating this victory are just as we were at one time. They are seeking a way that seems wise to them, but is ultimately foolish before God. So as we seek to make disciples, we must look at people as more than the summary of their sins, more than the flamboyance of their lifestyle. They are people just like us made in the image of God. Therefore, we love them. We show them kindness and respect, even if they don't look like us or act like us or share our sexual ethics. As a Christian, godliness in someone else is not a requirement for us to be friends with them, right? Jesus was known as the friend of sinners, and we ought to follow likewise. And in fact, we'll hear more about that next Sunday. We ought to love your neighbor, even the LGBT ones. Be their friend, have them over for dinner, try to meet their practical needs whenever you can. Speak clearly as a witness to Christ, but do not engage in harmful rhetoric or throw out comments meant to demean. Love them because here's the, here's the, the sad and stark reality of the decisions in their lifestyle now. It is simply a further expression of the sexual revolution that, that can go back uh, to Roe v. Wade, that can go back to the creation of the pill, so many other things. We are on the same trajectory. And what people have found for generation after generation is that ultimately, the sexual revolution cannot keep good on its promises. Promises of a satisfied and free life. And eventually what people find is slavery to sin is not all that satisfying. It's not all that freeing. It's not all that fulfilling. And so as Russell Moore says, there will be, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not the next day, but in 5, 10, 20 years, there will be refugees out of this movement. Just as there are refugees of women from the movement of pro-choice, pro-abortion, pro-death. How are we going to respond if we've been full of anger and vitriol, they're not going to come for us looking for help or aid or comfort. But if we've been loving despite their disagreement with us, they will come to us and we will be ready and prepared to serve them and help them find the one, the only one who can give them the freedom and the longing and the satisfaction they need, namely Jesus Christ. We have to understand that this victory for them isn't about law or marriage. It is about validating their lifestyle as equal and normal. In an opinion piece from the New York Times, Frank Bruni responded to the court's ruling on behalf of the gay community. Here's what he said in the last paragraph of his article. Supreme Court's decision wasn't simply about weddings. It was about worth. From the highest of this nation's perches to the most authoritative of this nation's voices, a majority of justices told a minority of Christians, excuse me, of Americans, that they're normal and that they belong fully, joyfully, and with cake. We know better. Just because you call something normal doesn't make it normal. And so we have to be ready when that, that reality hits, that I what they thought would make them feel good, make them feel normal, make them feel self-worth is hollow and empty. Rosaria Butterfield, a person you should know if you don't already, has an amazing testimony of God calling her out of her sin to himself, including a full-on lesbian lifestyle and advocate for it in the academic settings of a university. How did he do that? she decided to write a book on her sabbatical against a response to the evangelical rights condemnation of same-sex marriage and the gay lifestyle. So in order to do part of her research, she read the Bible seven times straight through in two years. Now that should be an implicit condemnation for most of us right there. (laughs) But she got to the end of it and what she realized was she wanted Jesus. But where would she go? She had been befriended by a Presbyterian pastor who did not seek to convert her at first, but just was there to be her friend and to answer her questions. And yet he was instrumental in bringing the gospel to her life. Recently, Rosaria Butterfield told the Southern Baptist Convention, quote, don't underestimate the power of genuinely loving people with a sense of fervency and consistency and honesty. Elsewhere, she says, how can you possibly have strong words without strong relationships? How can you possibly have strong relationships without taking the risk of being rejected? If you want to put the hand of the lost into the hand of the Savior, you have to get close enough to get hurt. That may be a new idea for many Christians, but it's the ground rules of the new game. She says, you have to understand that the LGBT community is a community that is rich and thick on relationships. She says it was nothing for people at a moment's notice on a whim who perhaps just stayed too late at their party to be sleeping on their couches and in spare bedrooms, her and her partner's house. That was nothing to them. Sometimes she says it meant the difference between suicide the next day or staying alive because they were rejected for by their family and friends for their lifestyle. If if that's the kind of love and care and support that they can provide for their own people, how much better ought we ought to be able to love and care for them and others? Because the very love of God himself has been poured into our hearts through Christ. As Christ commanded, love your neighbor, but don't stop at the friendship. Don't stop with just the loving and the attention and the care. Do the most loving thing. And secondly, preach the gospel preach the gospel. Jesus says we are sent out into the world to make disciples, but without gospel proclamation there is no disciple making. How will they believe unless they hear? Paul says in Romans 10, "We can love and befriend better than anyone, but if we do not speak the glorious truth of a man who bled and died and rose again for all sinners, we will never see people saved." Do you remember what Paul told the Corinthians? In 1 Corinthians 6, he says, do you not know that the unrighteous, is condemning them for not living a consistent Christian lifestyle. And he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Next verse. And such... Were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Loved ones, this is what we offer new life in Christ. Just as we were once sinners, even sexual sinners, we do not need to stand in judgment of anyone. They are already condemned by their sins. Instead, what we need to do is offer them the same gospel that we have received. You see, here's the problem. So very often we think we're presenting the gospel to people, but what we're really doing is taking shots at their sin and telling them, you need to deal with this sin. You need to change your behavior. They can't do that. What did the prophet say? Can, can, can a, a zebra change its spots? Can someone who has dark skin make it light or someone who has light skin make it dark? No, only God can change a person's heart. This is why we do not come at someone and say, you got to stop living this way. you got to stop doing this. you got to do." doing this. No, we say, go to Christ and find forgiveness for your sins in the gospel. That's what we target at. We target the heart, not their sin. Listen again to Dr. Butterfield's helpful clarity in this issue. She says, don't presume... That the worst sin in your gay and lesbian neighbor's life is sexuality. It's not. The worst sin is unbelief. The fruit of homosexuality is the ethical outworking of a heart and mind and identity that rejects the idea that God is author and by implication that his word has the right to interrogate my life, not the other way around. Do you understand what she's saying there? Because she's lived it and she's come out of it. And she says, my worst problem was not my lifestyle. My worst problem was the fact that I didn't know God. And so when we go to make disciples preaching the gospel, it comes in the context of love, but it is aimed at helping them know God through Christ. We're not preaching moral reform. We're preaching forgiveness and salvation by grace alone. So don't try to turn people straight or convince them their friends and family are wrong. They are wrong. Morally and socially, the Bible is clear. They're wrong. They're sinful. They're going to hell. But what they need to hear, as at least as our entry point, is the gospel of Christ. Even if we don't struggle with the same sins, we have common ground because every person we meet is just like us. We're sinful. That's their fundamental problem. And the answer to that problem is Christ. One person says, you can't be a gospel people if you give up the truth, and you can't be a gospel people if you give up grace let's use this moment to be the people Jesus called us to be. And we can do that without fear, Jesus says, because we have a lasting assurance. This is the the third and final thing we see from these verses this morning. We have a lasting assurance. Jesus says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. When Jesus ascended to the Father, he did not abandon his people. He says, I will always be with my people. In fact, uh, just a little while after this, in Acts chapter 9, Saul is persecuting the church. He is ravaging the church. And Christ shows up to him. And you know what he says? Why are you persecuting me? Because the people of God are never abstracted from their Savior, from their God. He is with them in all things is suffering as well as in times of joy that should be an encouragement to us in our disciple making wherever we go christ is with us and it's important that it's an essential that we believe that now because despite what some people are saying even in a church the sky is not falling in because of this issue the world is not going to end tomorrow this did not bring about the last days of the return of christ that came when he ascended to the father And the Spirit came down. And Peter said in Acts 2, now we are in the last days. So we've had the last days for almost 2,000 years, folks. When Monday comes and the radio hucksters are going to have a field day with this decision, seeing it as the perfect time to panic, predicting that this is the end of democracy as we know it. Look, we've said there's cause for concern, especially in the long term. But if if we are Christ's people, we don't panic. It's never the time to panic if we are Christ's people because he is still on the throne. As one person said, everything's going to be okay because the Supreme Court didn't put Jesus back into the tomb. He's still alive. He's still reigning. He still has authority over all things, ruling and abiding with his people by his spirit. No court decision is going to change that. Others are going to try and stroke the embers of anger and outrage. Again, remember, this is not just a social issue. It's not a political point. It's a gospel issue for us. And even if we could pinpoint specific people that we could identify for our enemies, what does Jesus say? Love Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Paul is very clear that ultimately those that we think are our enemy are probably not our enemy. This is a spiritual battle. This is a spiritual battle and it's only going to be one on spiritual terms. And the same one who here assures us that he is with us always elsewhere throughout the scripture makes clear that he is greater than any spiritual force in this world. He ensures that darkness never overcomes the light and that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. In fact, Christ is a king who bends history to his will. He doesn't just kind of stand aloof and says, Well, I can, I can, I can, I'll do damage control. That's not what Jesus is. That's not how he rules. He is sovereign over all things. So even if the Supreme Court rules in a way that seems to redefine marriage, the truth is no government can actually create or recreate marriage. It can only recognize it. God created marriage to be resilient all the way to the end. Have you thought about this? People are saying this is the end of marriage as we know it. No, I don't think so. I've read the end of the Bible. The Bible started in Genesis 2 with a marriage and in Revelation 19 it ends with a marriage. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And on that day, everything that marriage in this life, in my life, and your life, the life of your parents and your grandparents, all the way back to Adam and Eve will come to full and final fulfillment. Namely, the abiding, joyous fellowship of God with His people. And an intimacy far greater than we will ever know in this world. And long after any human government is gone. That joyful bliss of that final marriage is going to stretch into eternity. I end with these helpful words from Al Mulder. He says this. In one sense, everything has changed. And yet nothing has changed. The cultural and legal landscape has changed as we believe this will lead to very real harms to our neighbors, but our Christian responsibility has not changed. We are in charge to uphold marriage as the union of a man and a woman and to speak the truth in love. We are also commanded to uphold the truth about marriage in our own lives, in our own marriages, in our own families, and in our own churches. We are called to be the people of the truth, even when the truth is not popular and even when the truth is denied by the culture around us. Christians have found themselves in this position before and we will again. God's truth has not changed. The Holy Scriptures have not changed. The gospel of Jesus Christ has not changed. The church's mission has not changed. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that in the midst of these times, Lord, you give us confidence and encouragement because we're not left to ourselves. We're not left to ourselves to live however we want or to make things up as we go. But Father, you've given us truth truth that transcends time and every culture because your truth is creating a new culture, the culture of your people that will dwell forever in heaven with you. So, Father, we pray that we would continue to look to Christ as the one who has authority, that we would not be swayed by culture, but, Father, also the one who has given us our assignment to go and to make disciples, and that we would do that both by being clear on the gospel, but also by loving our neighbor, by being patient, even the friend of sinners. And Father, help us to do all of this knowing where the future is going, how things end, and that Christ is going to be with us until that day. We pray these things in His name and for His glory. Amen.